Hello and welcome to season six of the Travel Diaries podcast. How did that happen? Season six. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Well, I hope you've had a good couple of months. It's been great to hear about some of the places you've been traveling to. Thank you for getting in touch. I've managed to squeeze in a few trips of my own, so I'll fill you in on those across the coming weeks as there are some places that you have got to add to your travel wish list. There have been some really good ones I can't wait to tell you all about. And I actually spoke to today's guest, who we'll come to in a moment, while I was abroad in France. My first trip abroad since uh, pre-pandemic times, which was just so nice, so so lovely to be uh, immersed in a different culture, different language, different food. Really, that change of environments makes such a difference, doesn't it? So we took the train down from London to Avignon and stayed first in the medieval town of Vaison-la-Romaine. If you're in the uh, Vaucluse area of Provence, it's a place I really recommend visiting. Very pretty. The region is extremely mountainous, overlooked by Mount Ventoux, which... uh, features in the Tour de France a lot of the time. The area is very full of vineyards and uh, great restaurants and Vaison itself is famous for its Roman ruins which you'll find throughout the town. It's really quite remarkable. There are ruins everywhere and there are lots of wild cats that go and sleep on the uh, different Roman columns at night which is quite an amazing sight especially kind of as the sun is setting. And then from there we drove down to the Riviera to Saint-Tropez my first time down there and wow I can't believe how near really it is to England and yet how tropical it felt we were extremely lucky to stay at a hotel that has flown to the top of my all-time favorites Arel Chateau de la Messardier and that's my best French accent for someone who doesn't speak French (laughs) you know pulling up to this hilltop chateau in Saint-Tropez was just one of those unforgettable travel moments, one of those pinch yourself moments with its fairy tale turrets and it was surrounded by umbrella pines that kind of stretch down to the bay because it overlooks the famous Pampelone Bay. There's so much I could tell you about the hotel, but I'll just keep to some of my favorite parts. It's recently been renovated, so the design throughout is just so luxe, so polished and but also just really imbued with that feeling of the Riviera too. It's kind of classic and cool combined. And the hotel is one of few down there that has a beach club with an incredible tropical jungly beachfront restaurant as well called uh, Jardin Tropezina. And the hotel has a shuttle. It shuttles you in very snazzy cars to and from the beach, which is about like five minutes down the hill. Oh, that beach, stunning. Um, they're those kind of pinstripey umbrellas and comfy sunbeds. It was gorgeous. And um, the new spa is vast, huge actually. Speaking from my own experience and to other journalists and guests there, the, I think it's really one of like the best spas in the world. I had a facial there, which literally made me look five years younger. That my therapist had a magical touch, and um, it hasn't lasted sadly, but for, for at least a good week. <laughs> so I was thrilled with that. Um, and our suite, um, well 
It was unreal. I mean, I was very lucky to stay there. Look on my Instagram. I took a ton of photos. All the rooms have jaw-dropping views because, you know, you're on this hilltop surrounded on either side by the sea. So just every every corner is a picture. And I am i don't know about you guys, but I'm just all about a good view. It's just really high on my holiday criteria to have a good outlook. So yeah, I took tons of photos. And I was just really surprised also about how green Saint-Tropez was because the water there is so warm and so clear. I kind of expected it to be a bit more scorched, but it was just so lovely to be down on this like white sand beach and enveloped either side by pine forests, which I found really tranquil and calming. I I know there's another side to Saint-Tropez altogether, which is a lot wilder. I didn't go for that vibe. I was there at the end of September, so, you know, 25 degrees and sun. The beach was empty for a late summer break. As far as I'm concerned, it's like the absolute dream and so convenient. Got to be honest, obviously, Saint-Tropez, you probably already know, is not cheap. I was very lucky to be hosted by that hotel. And there were there are a lot of supercars outside. We rocked up and my dad's clapped out old red Fiat. And I think they whisked it away as quickly as they could. <laughs> but I would save up to be able to return there. I mean, just for a few days in the future, because it was just really special and also not pretentious. Okay, right. Enough gushing from me. Although, actually, it was from this magical chateau that I spoke to my first guest of the season. So, this interview, it's been about a year in the making, I'd say. And then, last minute, came my way while I was out in France. Of course, I had to say yes. Stanley Tucci. Uh, What a dream guest. The multi-award winning actor. You've seen him in The Devil Wears Prada, The Hunger Games, Julie and Julia, Supernova fortitude and the lovely bones for which he was nominated for an oscar he's directed four movies and recently won an emmy for his new food and travel tv series stanley tucci searching for italy he's a huge foodie he's written two delectable cookbooks and his new memoir taste is just as delicious it's a mixture of autobiography family recipes and like funny anecdotes and I devoured it poolside. It really is very readable. I recommend it. It's just lovely, actually. And of course, Stanley became a bit of an internet social media... Well, not actually a bit of it. He became a total internet social media sensation during the COVID lockdown with his cocktail making videos. If you've not seen them, check out his Instagram. His video of how to make a Negroni saw him take on a newfound sex symbol status. (laughs) which we have a laugh about in this chat. This is actually the third time I've interviewed Stanley. The other two were on red carpets a while ago, so I'm sure he didn't remember me. Those interviews were pretty fleeting, but it was lovely to reconnect with him again. A lot of you have asked me what he was like, and he was just great. And you'll hear in this episode that we actually had a really close encounter not so long ago by pure coincidence. We were basically on the same holiday. I wasn't stalking him. But uh, for this, I was in France. Stanley was in London and occasionally the Zoom robot voice. You know what I mean? That one that I've come to dread does kick in momentarily, but that shouldn't detract from what I hope you find. It's just a really great chat, a love letter to Italy and, of course, to food. So let's get started. Season six, Stanley Tucci. Here we go. Stanley Tucci, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is an absolute joy to be joined by you today. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. I'm very, very, very good. Glad to be here. Thank you. Great. Well, so this podcast is going to be going on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries. Mm-hmm. And just as 
travel can shape your life, so too can food. As mm -hmm. we discover um, reading your gorgeous memoir, Taste, which has been a lovely accompaniment to a trip out here in France, although it transported me all, all over the world. I mean, <laughs> really, really, though, what I took from that is that just as travel can punctuate your life, so too does food so strongly and food memories are kind of the key pillars of your life thus far yeah yeah they are I mean uh, everything because I grew up in a family that you know put tremendous importance on food and just really cooked great food it couldn't help but become just a huge huge part of my life and <clears throat> and it's what I have become more and more interested in as the years go by mm. and so As the book gets going, it sets the scene of you growing up in New York State in the 1960s. You're the son of uh, first-generation Italian immigrant parents on both sides in a house that's uh, full of food and full of amazing smells of cooking. So it feels like only right that we should begin by discovering your earliest childhood food memory. What's the <laughs> first thing that comes to mind? I remember, you know... It's very hard. I don't know that I have a first memory, really. But but I, I, I remember my grandmother's pasta and her bread that she would bake, which was just incredible. Mm. So sweet smelling and soft and delicious. And she'd take it out of the oven and serve it to you warm. You'd soak up the sauce from her that she had made that you ate with homemade pasta. It was just kind of amazing. Even the way she cooked a hamburger was, I don't know how she did it. She took a hamburger. I don't know what meat she, I don't know. And just throw it into this like sort of, not a cast iron pan, but like a metal pan, like a black metal pan with a little bit of salt. She fried up super fast and you'd eat. And it was just one of the most delicious things I'd ever had. Um, and my mother too, like amazing, amazing cook. So is there one particular memory? Not necessarily, but. The book, though, really sets the scene, doesn't it, in terms of the kind of food that you're consuming. And I love that um, your mum would threaten you if, if you were kind of kicking up a stink about what you might be eating that night that you'd have to eat at um, a, a neighbor's house. And I thought that really put it into perspective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She'd say, well, why don't you go see what the neighbors are having? I mean, that's, it wasn't just that, yeah, at, we knew that nobody, nobody cooked like us, but also it was like, look, If you don't like it here, <laughs> go someplace else, <laughs> which I <laughs> still say to my kids, you know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, look, what do you want me to say? This is the way it is. This is this is what I'm making. This is the way, this is what we eat in this household. If you don't like it, go someplace else. Go to a restaurant. She used to say, go ahead, go to a restaurant. Of course, you couldn't go to a restaurant because you were 11 or whatever. But Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, <laughs> where are you going to go? But it was, you know, it's the statement of my house, my rules, sort of. Exactly. Which exactly. I admire. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to kick off your travel diary, Stanley. Chapter one being your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? Probably going to Vermont, driving to Vermont uh, to go skiing when we were kids. Mm -hmm. We used to go every winter. And this is before a lot of like sort of the bigger roads were built. So it was be quite, it would be quite a drive to Vermont at the, in those days. But it was beautiful. And I remember staying in this, this um, house, this really cool modern house uh, near Haystack. It was Haystack Mountain, which is now, I think, part of Mount Snow. 
And it was this cool, like totally cool 60s house, just probably one of the greatest, you know, times ever. And I, I don't know how old I was. I was probably about, maybe it was nine or something like that. And Vermont is one of those beautiful kind of quintessential all-American states, isn't it? I mean, how would you paint a picture of it as a as a place to visit uh, landscape wise. Oh, well, it's really, it's really, it's really bucolic. It's, um, has lots of pines and oaks and maple trees, uh, beautiful mountains. There's the green mountains of Vermont, which are very green. And then it has, you know, it doesn't really have the peaks that you have out in Utah or something like that, like that, that, the height, but still there are some really good ski areas there. And it's absolutely beautiful country. I think, it has an incredible number, it did many years ago, a number of dirt, dirt roads still, like the highest number on, in the East Coast or something. Mm. Um, lots of beautiful old farmhouses, really potent winters. Really great seasons. Yeah, great, real seasons, real, real. You get them all. It's beautiful. Mm, mm. And then your first time on a plane, you were going abroad for a full year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd never been on a plane before. I was 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd only been on a train maybe a, a few times <laughs> going to neighboring towns. But yeah, it was really exhilarating. I think we flew Pan Am, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. And it was very, it was very exciting. And then, you know, getting, getting, we didn't have a car when we were in Italy. So, you know, we flew into Rome, stayed in a pensione for a couple of days and then took the train to Florence. So you were there because your dad was taking a sabbatical? Is that right? Yeah, he took a sabbatical because he taught art, studied uh, sculpture, bronze casting, and figure mm-hmm. drawing. And what was that like, getting on that plane for the first time and landing in Italy? Because having been surrounded by Italian culture, was there a sense of coming home, a sense of familiarity when you arrived? No, not at all. There was no, <laughs> not at all. It was very, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, but I didn't speak Italian. Uh, and Italian was not spoken in my home. It was my grandparents who came over. So, and they spoke English for the most part, but they talked to each other. My grandfather, my mother's father didn't speak English really very well at all, but, um, so they spoke in Italian, but their Italian was a dialect. Oh, really? So arriving in Florence was shocking. I'd never lived in a city before. Everyone was speaking Italian. Um, and... You know, it was it was a completely different experience than coming from the. We lived on a cul-de-sac in Westchester, uh, off a dirt road, and you know it was distinctly different than than the city of Florence. So it was kind of culture shock when we arrived. What was what were your first impressions? Well, the pace at which everything was moving. I mean, particularly in Rome too, and the age of everything. The age alone was incredible. You know, you don't have a lot of old, <laughs> you don't have that stuff in America. Yes, yeah. Um, so, and then you're, you know, there's the Colosseum and then there's the, the the Pantheon. And then, you know, I mean, it's astounding. Not not only to mention just even just the sort of regular buildings you're, you're in that your pensione yeah. was in was probably built in the late 1800s, mid 1800s or something like that. So it was exciting. Exciting and very different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and did you? How did you settle into the Italian way of life? Did it come naturally to you once you were there? Yeah, once we were there, I really, I really liked it. You know, it's distinctly different. Um, school was very different. School was uh, from about eight thirty in the morning to like 
maybe one in the afternoon or something like that. And I loved that. Um, But I was thrown right into an Italian school. So I had to learn Italian, but it was nice because you had a, you had a certain, um, you, I I had a lot of freedom. I I could take a bus, eventually start taking bus someplace to see a movie or with my friends and uh, just walk around the corner to to the park and play football or soccer every day. Uh, it was it was walk to this little cinema around the corner and and uh, watch like kung fu movies dubbed into Italian mm-hmm. and Laurel and Hardy movies and all that stuff. It was just it was really really great. I made a lot of friends and it was fun. And eventually you settle in. Well, I did miss America, but but for the for quite a while I was very happy there. That sounds like a really lovely thing to do. I mean, would you ever do that with your young children, take them abroad to Italy for a year to get that same experience? I would, but it's it's not an easy thing to do. Nowadays, it's very, you know, it, in some ways it's easier. In some ways it's it's hard. I mean, my wife has a a full-time job and um, and I sometimes have a job. So yeah, we'd have to figure it out. But we're lucky enough, we're lucky enough to be able to travel a lot. I mean, obviously not for the last year and a half. But um, for the most part, we try to go to Italy in the summers uh, for a couple of weeks at least, try to make a couple trips and take the kids different places. So my older children grew up going to a lot of different places, and it was great. To go and live someplace for an extended period of time, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. And did it give you a taste for travel when you got there, having, you know, not traveled before um, outside of the U.S.? Oh, very much so. So when I graduated college about um, a year or so later, a year and a half later, I, my grandfather had left some stock, which I cashed in. It was about $2,000. And I went to Europe for about three weeks to a month. And it was fantastic. I was, had, was, I was desperate to go back. Really? Yeah. Mm. Well, chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? Um, first place I fell in love with was probably Florence. Oh, it was Florence. Because it just had so much to offer. It was so beautiful, so ancient. Mm. It would probably be probably Florence. And did you immerse yourself in the culture there? Was it the food that excited you? Was it the history? What kind of was it that really stuck in your mind, got you going? It was the, it was the history of the place. The food... We didn't really eat the food. I mean, my mother cooked. So, you know, we didn't go out to restaurants and things like that. It wasn't really an affordable thing to do necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, my mother cooked, but it was the history of the place that impressed me most of all. And speaking of falling in love, when did you fall in love with acting, would you say? When did that, that bug get you? Oh, I was a kid. I was doing a play. I was like in fifth grade or something. And so, which means I was about... I don't know, nine or 10 or something. And I was on stage doing this, doing this play. And I realized that I felt much more comfortable on stage than I did off stage. Really? That's so interesting. A lot of actors seem to say that. And what does that, what do you think that means? I have no idea. I can only quote Tom Stoppard when, as he wrote in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, the player in the play, there's a role of the player. And he says, we're actors. We're the opposite of people. Hmm. 
How interesting. What an interesting quote. Yeah. And so you were, you were being the opposite of people and doing your school, your school plays and, you know, fast forward several years and you were landing, you know, huge roles in massive films. What was the moment when you felt like you made it? Because I know that actors often feel a kind of like it's, they're always wait. you're always waiting for the next job. So like, was there a moment when you're like, right, this is it. I've, I'm I'm here and I'm going to be acting. No, I never felt that. Never. No, because your career does this, mm. and it's a very fickle business. So um, you think you're going to be okay for a little bit, and then suddenly uh, that has happened consistently for forty years. Now at this point, I'm in, I'm in a much more secure position. I think I've just been around for so long that people have given up and just decided, "Oh, just hire him." <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you find that people recognize you most from? Which film do like people come up to you on the street and and mention to you the most? Uh, it depends. It depends on the on the person. I mean, a lot of it. A lot of times, Devil Wears Prada, because that was a film that not only like young women watched and women watched, but guys liked it and. It would be that. It would be something like Conspiracy that I did for HBO many years ago. That was about the um, uh, meeting that the Nazis had about the final solution. Um, it could be Julia and Julia, Transformers. Oh, I love that film. Yeah, I do too. Um, the Hunger Games is one. Or Big Night, which is the the first movie I co-wrote and co-directed. And The Foodies, The Foodies Choice. The Foodies, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Um, I think probably at university. Where did you study? Start, I studied at SUNY at Purchase, which is State University of New York at Purchase, which was only about 20 minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I stayed there and it was a conservatory. So these were schools that were the State University of New York that, you, you know, they're very affordable if you live in state. And this, this particular school was built primarily as uh, a school, a, a series of conservatories. So acting and the visual arts, dance, film and music. So you had to audition to get in and all that. And it was a really, really great experience for the most part. And I think there with this wonderful teacher I had, George Morrison, I was really able to expand and learn a lot about myself. And so what kind of things did you learn, would you say? Well, there are certain things that George, that George taught. You know, he taught in a very unconventional way. I mean, he would teach you the sort of the sense memory stuff and things like that. That's the sort of classic Stanislavski teaching. But yeah. he, he focused a lot on improvisation, which was invaluable, I think, because it, uh, engenders spontaneity yeah. and he also uh, t worked with things like neurolinguistic programming which I thought was really cool and very progressive yeah yeah he was a really he was he was way ahead of his time yeah and so you chose to you you were studying in New York um, New York State is of course very different to Manhattan, which is where most people picture when <laughs> yeah. they think of New York. So 
I, I mean, I've loved traveling around upstate New York myself, going mm. to the Catskills yeah. and the Finger Lakes. What, what kind of parts of New York State do you, would you recommend to my listeners who would like to get a kind of maybe a long weekend out of a, a trip oh. to Manhattan, say, as well? Oh, wow. Wow. Um, go up, just go up to like the New Paltz area. I uh, mm -hmm. have friends who, who live up there and they can go visit my friends if they want. No, they, you have the New Paltz area is the Shawnagunk Mountains, which are, if I'm not mistaken, actually like the oldest mountains in the world or something like that. And it is absolutely beautiful. I think particularly in fall and, and winter, it gets really good snowfall, the colors. The fall foliage. The fall foliage is just astounding. Um, but then, of course, like you say, going up into the Catskills and yeah, it's, that's all pretty gorgeous. It's so lovely at this kind of time of year when there are pumpkin patches and like cider mm. being sold by the side of the road. Oh, yeah. They call it, uh, for, for my listeners who don't know, they call it leaf peeping <laughs> when you go and see the, the, different, uh, see the yeah. different trees. And I just think that's such a lovely concept. And actually really kind of post-pandemic or pandemic um, still, I, I don't know if we could yeah, say post-pandemic yeah. yet, to be at one with nature in that way, to travel for something like the fall foliage, I think is particularly kind of, I think will be higher on people's agenda, perhaps. I mean, have you have you found that nature has been more important to you in this time than ever before? Yes, definitely. I, I want, we've taken a couple trips to the Cotswolds, um, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the kids for couple of weeks at a time or a week at a time just to, to get away because, you know, you couldn't fly anywhere. You can't go anywhere. I mean, yeah. down, my wife and I went to Cornwall uh, and it just, and I, and you know what, Stanley, what? You, you were, when you were staying in Cornwall, yeah. I was staying, I don't want to sound like I uh, kind of stalker, yes. but I was staying two, two doors down from you in the same hotel What at Watergate Bay. Yeah. You can't. So yeah, so I, I I like was so I I toyed with coming and saying hello because Felicity, your your wife, is a, is a literary yeah. agent. She's for the agency that I'm signed to, and I've not yet met her. So I was thinking, oh, should I go and say hello? Wait, um, are you? So are you with Curtis Brown? I am. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, yeah. So am I. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, so I I am sure that you had a wonderful time as I did at Watergate Bay. Isn't it? Isn't Wasn't it a it beautiful, beautiful <sighs> beach? So vast and expansive. Uh, I just love it. I love it. We've been down there a number of times. We usually go to Morgan Porth, which is just mm -hmm. a little farther along, 10 minutes away or something. Oh my God. I think we keep talking about it. I mean, if I think if I could live some other place in England, it would be there. Mm, I just, yeah, I don't even you. swim. You know, I don't even go in the water, but I don't care. I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. So you, you mentioned that you went to the Cotswolds as well. So you've been doing some UK staycations. Where in the Cotswolds <laughs> yeah. were you were you frequenting? We were near Sirencester. Is that how you say mm -hmm. it? Sirencester. Yeah. What a beautiful old market town. Yeah. But it's, it's lovely, isn't it, to kind of start discovering more that's on your doorstep because for the first time in a long time, you know, we've we've been kind of, you could say limited, but actually, you know, it's been a, it's been a real opportunity to actually see how beautiful the UK is and there's just so much to, so much to see. It has so much to offer. I did a movie two years ago 
in the Lake District, and I'd never been there before. I was completely overwhelmed. It was like another planet. Um, mm. Absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. That was Supernova? Yes. Yeah. I lo loved that yeah. film. That was such a beautiful film. Oh, and and, and um, yeah, as you said, also almost like a love letter to the landscape. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Harry, the director, was very insistent that we shoot there. And I was like, oh, Harry, why do you have to shoot? Why do we have to go away for I have to go five hour drive away. Can't we just shoot it around London? Then I can stay home with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, no, I think it's actually very important. And, you know, the landscape is amazing. I was like, oh, all right. And then we got there. And as soon as we, as soon as we, as soon as I arrived, I went, oh yeah, all right. Well, yeah, yeah. I get it. Then you didn't want to leave. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for my listeners who might not know the Lake District, how would you bring it to life? Oh, I don't know that I'm the one to do that. All I can say is that there are these astounding rolling hills and everything is so lush because it is the rainiest part, isn't it? It's the wettest part yeah. of, of England. But the landscapes are other. You, it almost looks like New Zealand at, at times. And all of these beautiful lakes, stunning, clear, gorgeous lakes and beautiful old farmhouses and lots of sheep roaming around farmers fields and beautiful old stone walls and it'll rain and then suddenly by the end of the shoot it started snowing and it was oh, it was magnificent oh that sounds magical you know i've never been um well i haven't been since i was a child it's yeah romantic it's something yeah it's something very romantic about it yeah mm, wonderful when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Let's pause there and move on to chapter four. Mm -hmm. And this is the big one, your all-time favorite travel destination. Ooh, so hard. That's like impossible. But I'll make an attempt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was only there twice, but it, it was... In, in, I think up in the Alps to, uh, to Zermatt, mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty. There was a friend who owned a company that, that owned these beautiful um, chalets, and he invited us to come and stay. And there was a view outside of the uh, so many windows of the Matterhorn. Yeah. And no cars, just these little electric things that take you around. And, you know, it was gorgeous. The food was incredible. The wine all of that that was that was pretty spe- special i have to say other than that it, you know lake como magnificent magnificent i like northern climbs i mean all of italy is gorgeous it's gorgeous as we discovered uh, on your fantastic show sally tucci searching for italy congratulations <laughs> emmy winning yes 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 thank you <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah it's cool yeah we're, we were all really happy we were very surprised it's great well i'm not i'm not surprised uh, i mean it, it, it's really a, a such a a wanderlust inducing uh program and one that makes a mouth water uh, so for people who don't know on the show you travel across the country to discover how the food across each of italy's 20 regions is, you know, as unique as its people. Right. And given that we're talking about all-time favorites, you know, where where on in making that was your favorite region to eat in Italy, coming back to the stomach? Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe Rome, right, which is right in Lazio is the region Rome sits in. Because you have everything that's sort of like perfect, you know, placement between north and south. Uh, but then Emilia-Romagna, Emilia Romagna, you have pretty incredible food. You know that's where Bologna is, and um, it's this very fertile area where you have also, you know, you have Parmigiano, you have uh, Parma ham, you have tortellini, you have Bolognese sauce. I mean, it's it's kind of like perfect. Today's episode is supported by Chitalia. Chitalia has been helping guests discover the best of Italy for over 90 years. Their experience and expertise, together with attention to detail and personal touch, really does make them the leading Italian holiday specialists. Their team of experts live and breathe all things Italy. Their extensive knowledge pairs guests with their perfect Chitalian holiday experience. Whether it's a room with a view over Lake Como, Stanley's favorite destination, 
or a tranquil boutique city hotel on a piazza in Florence, the team can create the perfect stay. For those looking for the unique, there's a romantic cave hotel in Matera, as seen in the new James Bond, or a hotel with its own thermal springs on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples, something we'll be hearing about in a moment. To make guests feel safe as traveling restarts, all bookings are backed by Titalia's Travel with Confidence Promise, giving a refund guarantee, free amendments and free cancellation up to three weeks before departure. So let the Italy experts craft the perfect holiday for you and experience Italy like a Chitalian. Thank you to Chitalia. You know, it's quite amazing, isn't it, how from region to region the, the cuisine varies. Oh my God. Yeah. Somebody was telling me a story recently she had a friend who who grew up in the north. She said she didn't, didn't have a tomato uh, or any. She never had anything with tomato sauce until she was like thirteen, sixteen, or something like that. Really? Yeah, because it's it, it, it's not it's just not like that. Yeah. You don't they don't serve it. Whereas down south, you know, you're you're never going to get a dish. You're not really going to get a dish of rice. Mm. You're not going to get a risotto. Now you will more, but basically in a restaurant, but you're not going to get it at home. Mm, mm. It's so different. And so your your family were from the Calabria region, is that yeah, right? Yeah, from Calabria, yeah. So yeah. what kind of um, what kind of food is archetypal for that region? And what would you travel to that region to enjoy, would you say? You know, it's really simple stuff. It's a lot of vegetables, like Puglia, because they're very poor areas, even though they're quite fertile. The, you know, meat isn't, like cows aren't a thing. You'd have sheep, goats, pigs, smaller animals, chickens. But it's mostly vegetables and pasta. Mm -hmm. And you get a little spice in Calabria, you know, because the farther south you go, you'll get spicier things because of the influence from Africa and in the Middle East. But uh, it's really basically pretty simple, but del absolutely delicious food. And now you're in production for a second season, is that right? Yes. That's exciting. Yes, we start, uh, yeah, I start, <coughs> excuse me, in like a week and a half. And um, it's daunting because it's a long stint, but it's, but it's exciting. Can you reveal where you might be heading? Yeah, we're going to go down to, where are we going to go? No, uh, no, we're going up. We're going to the Veneto. So we'll do Venice and the Veneto. Nice. Umbria and Piemonte. Sounds like the dream gig. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. But it's actually more tiring than you think it is. I mean, I know that sounds funny, and but it, it's, it, it is, it, it's not that easy all the time. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it does require a lot of traveling, speaking both languages, making sure you're getting the you know, all the information that you need, making sure that the contributor feels comfortable and and also keeping it alive and keeping it fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you end up sort of eating and, and drinking all day and, you know, by four o'clock in the afternoon, you're exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I read in the uh, Sunday Times profile that came out uh, last week about uh, with about you that Polly asked you to choose between food and sex um, <laughs> and that that was an impossible an impossible question I wondered so I thought I might give you a slightly easier one if you had mm. to pick between food and acting which would you go for I'm afraid I would choose food at this point would you I think so 
I feel like a cooking show should, you know, is on the horizon. Yeah, then you could sneak a little acting in there. Yeah. But I think doing the, you know, doing the the, the travel show in which I I'll, I will cook some on occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very satisfying on both. Do you know what I mean? In, in both ways, because you're performing to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're learning about food. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can't go without mentioning, as I'm sure people are mentioning to you every time they meet you now, your your Instagram account, the viral sensation of of, of Stanley Tucci and, and his videos. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, they are so fantastic and so so. Tra- I was just watching the ragu video last night, getting oh, some inspiration. Oh. One of the beautiful recipes. How did that come out? Was that all right? So. Yeah, I thought, and you know, like that you deliver them with such a kind of dry wit as well. So, I mean, and I, I yeah, I, I'm ready for, for, for more of those. Good, good. I'll do more as soon as I come back from Italy. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So chapter five is your hidden gem, a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know so much about. Um, Ischia. Oh. Gorgeous. I think that people go to the Amalfi Coast, and they go to Positano, they go to Capri, Naples, obviously. But Ischia is such a beautiful little island, like, I don't know, like an hour in a boat, maybe, or something like that from Naples. It's gorgeous. It's not totally overrun with tourists. The food is amazing. Uh, and, you know, Italian beaches aren't like, like a, a lot around the world very sort of rocky and whatever you know there's very few sort of nice beautiful sandy beaches and everything but it's still a gorgeous gorgeous place gorgeous place mm. people go to capri for its glamour it's a very kind of glamorous destination isn't it would you say that ischia is kind of like the more rootsy sister yeah. island yeah definitely definitely i mean you have some sort of fancier hotels and things like that but there's it's it's slightly more rustic and and not and not as sort of jam-packed with people so what does it look like it's quite it's it's mountainous and it's quite um there are lots of lots of trees and the the diet of, of the people was uh was not uh seafood it was mostly um vegetables pasta and rabbit or sheep or something like that rabbit is a big big thing there there's a restaurant that we actually put in one of the shows where uh i had been a couple times before and i said i want to put this in this episode i want to go to this place because first of all a lot americans don't really eat rabbit the british will eat rabbit more but italians love rabbit and the french love rabbit germans love rabbit Pfeffer. but on the island of Ischia, there's this little restaurant that serves they don't even serve fish they only serve meat. So it's rabbit and it's pork and it's whatever, but rabbit is their specialty. Cornelio Alischietana. And it's absolutely delicious. Um, but that was, but that's a traditional, that's a very traditional part of the diet. So what does that rabbit dish actually cut? Like, what does it involve? What's in it? It's so simple. It's a little bit of garlic and some olive oil and you sear the rabbit, some white wine. And then you have some tomato and you put it in an earthenware, you know, a terracotta thing and stick it in the oven. So mm. it's really good. I mean, that that's the thing with Italian food, isn't it? It's like the simplicity of it, but the, the power of the flavors just speak for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
If you look at a lot of Italy, there are very, very few ingredients in each dish in, in any given region. You know, you have maybe five ingredients a lot of the time. But with that uh, lesser ingredients, it means that it, you kind of almost need to perfect it even more. Yeah, exactly. And because there aren't a lot of spices, you know, there's a, there's a delicacy to it, I think. And you, you get to taste everything more, mm. the, few, the less there is, I think. And I, I think also the, what it says, too, is that the quality of ingredients has to be really high. I mean, it has to be like that for any, in any cuisine. But, you know, it can't hide <laughs> there's no place to hide no no exactly and i i read i don't know if this is true that at a certain point that you started selecting acting jobs according to the culinary opportunities offered by the filming <laughs> locations <laughs> sometimes yeah sometimes i mean it is an important part of the decision i mean sometimes you have no choice and you're like all right well we're gonna shoot and that's gonna be bad but yeah i mean i it's it is the first thing i think about after is the role good and is it affordable for me to do it, you know? Which, which set's really delivered there, would you say? Iceland. I, I shot a TV series in Iceland about six years ago or so. What incredible food. Oh, yeah. I, I wrote about it in the, the book. The food in Iceland is incredible, isn't it? Incredible. I had no idea. I was panicked. I thought, oh, God, well, it was like winter, too. I was like, what are we going to eat? This is going to be terrible. It was, um, I didn't want to leave. It was amazing. Mm. Incredible lamb, incredible uh, reindeer. The fish was amazing. The langoustine were amazing. Even the vegetables were amazing. They're all grown in hothouses, you know, that are ge powered by geothermal energy. It was pretty, it was a revelation. And I mean, isn't it an amaz amazing country as well? I mean, what a cool place to be based to shoot uh, a TV program. Oh, I mean, yeah. did, did you get to travel around Iceland? No, I never got to travel because I went in for like, I only made a couple trips because we were based here, shot most of it here. And then they went to Iceland. Some people were there for longer, but I was just there for like two weeks and then another time for like five days. This is fortitude, yeah? Yes, fortitude. So yeah. it was very, it's a very tight schedule. So you got to taste the great food but you need to go back to see the incredible yeah, landscape I know. I know because it is like well landing there even just landing at the airport right it's like landing on another planet yeah yeah it's, it's incredible I mean I spent one night in in Reykjavik and had an, an astounding meal because we were shooting like an hour's flight from Reykjavik in the middle of, I have no idea where we really? were. Really? So really remote? Oh, my God. Yeah. I have no idea where we were. But it was so beautiful. Mm. If you go back, I'd say go down to the south. About an hour's south of Reykjavik is a place called Vik, mm -hmm. where they have the, bl the black sand beaches. Oh, yes. Which kind of sparkle. And, you know, I'd never seen black sand beaches quite like that before. And um, oh. when they're kind of flanked by these verdant, like lush green mountains. I must have seen about 10 double rainbows in the period oh of like God. three days there. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. I really recommend that. Yeah. Oh, I will. I will. Yeah, definitely. Well, in contrast to wonderful Iceland, chapter six, the penultimate chapter is your worst travel experience. <laughs> um, oh God. There are lots of them. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there are those, I don't know that I can point to one in particular, but it's those times where you say, they go, it's a quick flight, you know, 
And then you get to the airport and your flight is canceled. And then blah, blah, blah. I remember flying back from Miami one time. It took me 10 hours or more. Ugh. It's supposed to be like a two hour flight or something to New York. It was just horrible. You know, you couldn't, and you know, it was just terrible. Anyway, um, I do remember coming back, just driving, driving back from Cornwall. And it took, again, it took 10 hours. Really? That road? There had been an accident, like an oil spill, and they closed the road, and then they had to re-tar the road. So we just sat. I sat there with my son and his friend in the car for 10 hours. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a a way to, like, undo the relaxation. Yeah. (laughs) So we're on to the final chapter of your travel diary, Stanley, chapter 7, which is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list. Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark. I was in Copenhagen for a day, but I'm, I really, really want to go to, to Sweden. Go hiking, go kayaking, go eating, <laughs> all that. <laughs> the, the outdoor pursuits, but always a bit of eating. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Stanley. Those were your travel diaries. Such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. A pleasure for me. Thanks for, thanks for asking me. How cool was that? Stanley Tucci, what a legend. His new memoir, Taste, is out now. Get it for all your friends and family for Christmas. It's one that everyone will enjoy. Thanks so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you really enjoyed it, then if you fancy leaving a rating or a review, that would be extra special. If you want to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Would love to hear from you as always. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's all of the first five seasons to catch up on. Nearly 70 episodes to keep you busy there. And don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests I always include in the episode show notes. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb. 
airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 